I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. So welcome to the latest episode of The Discomfort Practice. I've taken a little break in recording for a few weeks, so I'm actually feeling quite energized to get back to it. And I'm really looking forward to my next guest because I came across her several months ago, actually, when I was reading, as you do, about the world of work and the world of the pandemic and where we need to go next. And I'm always thrilled when somebody I don't actually know but admire says yes to be a guest on this podcast. (laughs) So let me go ahead and introduce Jennifer Moss. She is the journalist, author, speaker, and strategist driving the conversation towards healthier workplace cultures. She's the award-winning author of Unlocking Happiness at Work and frequent writer for Harvard Business Review and SHRM. Jennifer is also a member of the United Nations Global Happiness Council, and I'm sorry, but I'm just happier knowing that there is a United Nations Global Happiness Council. But what that is, it's a small group of leading scientists and economists who analyze and report on national happiness around the world. Jennifer contributes annually to the workplace chapter of the Global Happiness Policy Report. So that might be something you want to Google to make your day better or not. We'll talk about that. But last year, she published a new book, which is how I came across her, because it's in a focus area of my own work. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to meet this person. I have to talk to this person. Because her book is called The Burnout Epidemic, The Rise of Chronic Stress and How We Can Fix It. So it ends with a happy twist in the title, but it was shortlisted for the 2021 Outstanding Works of Literature Award in the Management and Culture category. It's described as an important and timely book, which I just wanted to be like, well, duh, we all know everybody's dealing with burnout right now, but it helps leaders and individuals prevent burnout and create healthier, happier, and more productive workplaces, which is what we've all been after for years. But I think this pandemic has shown us that we haven't cracked it yet, and now we have an opportunity to do this better. So the book jacket reads, we tend to think of burnout as a problem we can solve with self-care, more yoga better breathing techniques, and more resilience. But evidence is mounting that applying personal Band-Aid solutions to an epic and rapidly evolving workplace phenomenon isn't enough. In fact, it's not even close. If we're going to solve this problem, organizations must take the lead in developing an anti-burnout strategy that moves beyond apps, wellness programs, and perks. And to that, I add a big fat amen, because that's the space I'm working (laughs) into, and it's I could not agree more heartily. So this is discomfort that is literally close to home for a lot of people today, maybe you listening, because I have seen it, Jennifer has seen it, you're probably experiencing it around you, if not personally. A lot of people have been working from home and suddenly their personal and professional lives are mashed together. There's no break. They're having to do childcare or house care or still care for parents or relatives, or they've been isolated. And we are seeing burnout and it's getting probably worse. Again, we'll touch on that and see what which direction this trend is heading in. So people are also realizing that the organization they work for maybe doesn't align with their personal purpose or the lifestyle they really want to have. And 
they just don't know what to do about all of these issues that are kind of crashing together in the perfect storm. So as the pandemic has shown, self-care is important, but it's not a cure-all for burnout. So in this season three of the discomfort practice, I'm focusing specifically on the discomfort of change and rediscovering or creating new ways of being in this world and shaping society. And obviously a lot of us spend a lot of our time at work. So this is a really fundamental piece to how we are in our lives, how we are in the world, and then the springboard or the crushing force to do better in the world. So I would just like to say a warm welcome to Jennifer, and I'm really looking forward to our chat. I'm so looking forward to it. That was such a great, solid introduction. So thank you for setting up our conversation so well. I have to say, introducing guests is one of my favorite parts of this gig because I only talk to people I really like and admire. And also, it's just so much fun to sort of watch people react. I've said this before, actually, as they realize like the discomfort of being introduced sometimes, but then most people glow. They're like, oh, I sound awesome. And I'm like, it's because it's you are awesome. That's why you're here. I think you're awesome. So I'm going to introduce you accordingly. And there are levels of cultural discomfort with that, depending on if the guest is British in particular my lovely British friends who do not do praise well. But yeah, I'm really, really excited to have you here. But the first question I always ask is, what's an uncomfortable moment that has shaped who you are and what you do in the world? Well, there was a huge catalyst moment to all of this whole storyline of my career. And it was in 2009 when my husband, we were living in California, he was playing pro lacrosse, and he became acutely paralyzed. And we had this sort of very huge aha moment in the hospital, they said he wasn't going to walk again, which is really terrifying for a pro athlete to have their identity stripped away. And he found out he had post viral illness, Guillain-Barre syndrome after contracting swine flu and, and West Nile. So it's just this, this cataclysmic event in our personal lives. And one of the things that we learned while he was in the hospital was that as an identified high performer, very early on, like a lot of athletes are, they get mm. so much coaching and they go through a lot of development of their psychological fitness and emotional intelligence. And they have to learn with loss. They have to learn to rebound it alongside the fact that he was a healthy 30 year old male that had been playing really at a high level for so long, it was also this psychological fitness piece that was a huge part. And in that moment, he and I decided that he wasn't necessarily going to have some sort of comeback story or go back to work. It was realization that in that moment, we were 5,000 miles away from our family. We were alone in this moment together. We had a child at home and another kid that was on the way, and it sent us back to Canada that moment because all of the priority shifted and that discomfort led us to actually start on this career of identifying how psychological fitness, emotional intelligence, well-being actually plays a role mm -hmm. in your life satisfaction, but also your satisfaction at work. Oh, wow. I, that's a great story that I did not already know. I'm sure you've told it before a lot of places, but I guess it's just so interesting to think somebody who's so dominant and so strong in one area of their fitness suddenly had to realize that there's a whole other, there's sort of elements and so many different levels yeah. of fitness and resilience because to be a 30 year old male elite athlete and suddenly have that all taken from you must've been really traumatic, but interesting to witness as well. And sort of an it insight was. into strength. Mm -hmm. 
it was very difficult, but there was something about this buoyancy or this attitude that really attracted other people to him to help. And he got this extra help. And what I also started was all about research at the time. And as a journalist, you're curious to know what's going on. And I started reading this research by Christakis and Fowler, the idea of network or social contagions and Mm -hmm. how your attitude and not a toxic positivity way, just in a holistically strong sort of mindset, uh, growth mindset can really transform the people around you too. And it leads to just a healthier culture. And it was interesting to extrapolate his experience of that as like almost looking at a any sort of cultural impact and applying that within organizations, you saw the same thing happening. Those people that really had strong empathy and optimism and Mm -hmm. gratitude sort of pulled other people into their orbit and you saw better things happen. Oh, that's interesting. And I'm going to jump right on that term, toxic positivity, because it is one of my pet peeves because I spend a lot of time in yoga studios Mm -hmm. and You see signs that say good vibes only, but you're a researcher, you're a journalist, you research the crap out of everything, no doubt. So sort of what does toxic positivity really hide? What's actually under it? Is it just complete repression of anything that's negative and normal or like sort of what's your take on what is toxic positivity? I think you're accurate in that it is repressing feelings that make us uncomfortable. We don't like to have that state of discomfort. Our brain actually when we feel in lonely or we feel awkward or there's conflict, our brain kind of looks at those sort of cells that are feeling that way as error codes in our brain. And so the first thing we want to do is just settle it. We want a state of neutrality because that makes us feel better. And yet there's no growth in that. The whole concept of resiliency is that you have to rebound from something. If you don't ever You can't be resilient without actually going through the feelings. And I really like Talben Shahar's work on this concept of happiness set points and understanding that the only way you can increase your happiness set point is by going through sorrow and pain. And so this idea that we just sort of inauthentically pretend we're happy or that fake it till you make it, that doesn't work in a lot of scenarios. There's some scenarios where, yeah, it's good. You can put on your power pose and you can feel better. And, but not when it comes to real chronic stress or trauma, you can't just gratitude your way out of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, in some circles, it's called spiritual bypassing where you're basically skipping the hard work, but it's just to put it into a really easy, tangible concept. It's like skipping leg day at the gym every week and still expecting (laughs) to have good legs. You know, it's just like that stuff only happens because you work it out, because you do the work, because you go, I hate squats, but I'm going to do a hundred of them anyway. And that's, that's what being in a discomfort practice is. It's like going to the gym, isn't it? I had a really great thought today as I was walking down the street. And I think this is now our good jumping off point for talking about burnout. But I was thinking about how when you expand your discomfort, your ability to be uncomfortable, you also open up capacity for everything else to be more fully felt, whether it's joy or a real gratefulness for when things are good and not uncomfortable. So I think that's what we all want to aim for, even in our working lives, right? So let's talk about what causes burnout and what organizations can do to prevent it, or at this point, probably address it. 
Well, I go by the definition that the World Health Organization narrowed down in 2019. So there's been lots of definitions of burnout, but because it's been so nebulous, it's been, it's sort of been diminished and then stigmatized because Mm. it's been not devalued, sort of, it's not important and it's sort of silly or, you know, just a lot, which I really am frustrated by this whole idea of being just a whiny millennial that wants so much more work-life balance. And that's absolutely contrary to what it is. And what they define burnout as, as this is an occupational phenomenon. It's workplace stress left unmanaged or institutional stress Mm -hmm. left unmanaged. And it really shows up in three major signs, levels of exhaustion, just complete depletion, at the end of the day or feeling even in the morning, like it's a slog, you just can't get going. Mm. This feeling of lack of efficacy at work, emotional distance from your job where you're not feeling valued or effective. You don't feel good at what you do anymore. You also just feel like you don't have the tools to do your job. And then high levels of negativism or cynicism towards the job where this is sort of a hopeless feeling. It's never going to change or it's always going to be like this, that sort of fixed mindset, a very fatalist language, and also just feeling like you have no control over the outcome. And so these three big signs lead to symptoms of and can lead to symptoms of depression, anxiety. You know, you can have physical, major physical impacts from it. And in some cases, it's catastrophic. We see overwork responsible for the death of 2.8 million workers per year. So there are some catastrophic impacts to this. But what I think about the WHO, which is really important, is that they really try to make it about institutional stress and not Mm -hmm. just you have FOMO or you can't say no, or you're the busy soccer mom that's juggling too much. It really is accountability in the occupational space. Oh, wow. And they had no idea how timely that was going to be, putting that out in 2019. I had no idea. (laughs) The biggest institutional stressor that we've seen in our lifetimes. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm imagining that someone listening to this right now can relate to one or all of those points. And just to reiterate, you know, burnout is not failure. It's not a moment to just suck it up and soldier on. And hopefully this pandemic has taught us to do things like take care of ourselves when we don't feel well. But Let's talk a bit more about that. How have working cultures then, how have institutions contributed to that and how can they do better? Well, when you, again, look at the research and I I base a lot of the research on Maslock and Leiter's work, um, Susan Jackson as well, they're sort of the foremost experts in burnout from an academic standpoint. They've been looking at this and, and measuring it for a long time. I've kind of come into it with my team and we look at it as in a practitioner sort of standpoint. So it's this merging of academia, but actually we're seeing what's happening inside of the workplaces. And mm-hmm. what we're seeing is that there are these six root causes. And when you look at the root causes, it's fascinating. And I found this really fascinating is this idea that we think of burnout as always just workload, overwork. And that is the leading cause. It was pre-pandemic. It is inside the pandemic and it will be probably post-pandemic. Workload is a big problem. But there's also these five other categories that impact our burnout. You see this in lack of agency. So this inability to say no to your boss when they dump work on you at 11 o'clock at night and expect Mm -hmm. you to have it done the next morning. Or maybe you've been in love with this project you've been working on for two years, and then all of a sudden you're pulled off of it, or 
You don't have control over it anymore. Not having novelty at work anymore, being just so bored at work. So this lack of agency plays a big role. We see this in lack of fairness. So systemic Mm -hmm. discrimination, obviously we see those at risk, marginalized. We see a lot of organizations with a lot, maybe if they're trying to work on their DNI diversity and inclusion at these sort of mid-level roles and below, but no one at the board level, which doesn't really mean that there's diversity. You see it in lack of community. So exclusionary behaviors or having a peer that bullies where you feel othered. And it can also come out in loneliness. We've been so disconnected. So there's a lot of loneliness that plays a huge role. People not feeling that they are being rewarded for their efforts. That's just plain compensation hygiene, but it's also being celebrated for doing good work instead of being asked to work 70 hours and never being recognized. Mm -hmm. And then the last one is just lack of value, like lack of fit kind of not feeling connected to the goals or the values of the organization and feeling like you're not really right for this place. And it can make you feel very excluded or disconnected. So those are huge impacts on our burnout. And we just look at it as workload, then we miss all of these other categories that are playing a role. Mm, I can definitely relate to a few of those of of just not feeling safe at work because I've been working a lot with the WHO definition of well-being and obviously they've mm. used a lot of that in and there's overlap you know burnout as part of well-being and vice versa but yeah sense of belonging and just looking around and seeing people who look like you in management and feeling appreciated a lot of things that have seemingly been treated as fluff previously like yeah. celebrating employees or it's done in a way that isn't really genuine, like leadership don't take part and they're not modeling these behaviors. So it does make everybody feel, well, this is a bit disingenuous. Thank you for the tick box, the well-being app or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So then how do organizations tackle this in a real way that is genuine, that does have the desired impact for lack of a better term that actually helps people not to burn out and to not feel like it's just frosting on a broken culture? I love what you said. And I also think that you kind of hit the nail on the head in this idea that here's some programs that I'm not going to ever participate in Mm -hmm. kind of like don't answer emails on vacation, but I will. And the uh, writing, even I see these emails lately, that's kind of the, it's uh, these invisible pressures because the leaders aren't modeling and behavior, but you get these emails that say, you don't need to answer this right away. I'm just working at my own time. And, and the thing is, is that you're in a position potentially where you are part of a a minority group, a visible minority group, or you're part of, say you're a, a woman with three kids and you're the sole income earner for that family. You don't see that as I don't need to respond. I don't need to engage. And so a big part of what you're, you know, these examples are just we need to change the legacy. Nothing Mm -hmm. is going to get fixed unless the legacy changes. And that means leaders have to be very uncomfortable because there's a lot of discomfort in leaders saying, I'm going to not answer emails on my vacation, or I'm going to talk to my boss about creating this space for my employees. I need to evaluate stretch goals and make sure that in a global pandemic, that's really necessary for my team. Maybe we can't because I'm losing my team at levels of 41, 50% attrition. I mean, we need to start and it is that bad. And the thing is, is that we have such a mindset about growth 
and continuing to growth and respond to the market, we're not realizing that there's an extreme expense to that, which may be causing us to not actually reach our potential. Mm-hmm. It's about flipping it on its head and recognizing that these leaders, unless legacy changes and they actually really support it, we're going to continue this cycle of burnout forever. What's well, been a really interesting thing that's come into sharp relief in my own work lately, doing more work on diversity and inclusion is just how uncomfortable diversity is because you don't even have to know the statistics to know that people promote people who work like them. And that generally means they have a very similar life to them. So if you think of the majority of leaders, at least in the corporate world, but in most mm-hmm. worlds, politics, et cetera, are men. And in the Western world, they're particularly white, middle-class, educated men who probably have a support system at home. And, you know, sort of all of these things that are just unseen levels of support. And so they promote people who can work like them, who can respond to an email on a Sunday night or who they know that people will keep up with them and they're comfortable with the people who work like them. And so they promote the people who work like them. Whereas you do get millennials who want to have more work-life balance or working parents who need to take care of kids. And rather than seeing that as slacking, it creates a really uncomfortable conversation and a culture clash, right? Because they can't and they won't be able to work like the person in charge. So yes, I go back to modeling leadership as Mm -hmm. so essential quite a lot. And obviously you do too, because if leaders aren't willing to be uncomfortable and realize that it's really easy for them to just keep a legacy of people like them, things will never really change if they're not willing to actually take part in some of these uncomfortable things like not emailing late at night, or if you're going to email people on holiday, schedule your emails so they don't come out till Monday morning, which I have had to do a few times because I'm like, I just need to write this email, but I need to lead by example. Therefore, I am not going to allow it to send to like Monday at 10 in the morning. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's, that's how you make this stuff real. Right. And I think you've done a great job of illustrating a few ways in which this can actually become a practical culture change in organizations. So pandemic question, it was going to come early and obviously the great resignation or whatever we're supposed to call it right now, but how has the pandemic ramped up burnout or just put it on the fast track? It just massively exploded burnout. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. no way to get around that. It was a problem before we had meeting fatigue before. Now we have exponential amount of collaboration. We're over collaborating. We had addiction to technology before. I mean, it's just exponentially grown. We've had integration always on cultures at work before, again, exploded because of this shift. And because too, we've been dealing with a macro stressor and yet we've still behaved across kind of across most firms globally is to just look at this as business as usual and even responding to the market growth in certain industries. And what's happened is that we have this macro stress, which is giving us so much brain fog and inertia. It's harder to make simple decisions. We're in fight or flight and surge capacity. So it's just, it's like trying to work through quicksand and then there's all the distractions around us. So that forces us to work 30, sometimes 40% more each day to hit the same goals. So then we have to try to hit these add-on goals in a time where it's extremely challenging to do that. Our brains are just sluggish. They're not working at their top performing levels. And then you obviously have 
this experiment that's happening right now for a lot of people, particularly women who wanted flexibility, because that is a huge part. Pre-pandemic, I was writing Mm -hmm. the book and in the book, I was writing about how important it is to increase remote work. And I had to scrap (laughs) a lot of that language. It felt very tone deaf as we were going in this scenario and everything switched because societally women then were now responsible for all the unpaid labor and that increased to 20 hours per week. We're at 1988 labor force participation levels for females. So a lot of these things that were burning, that social Mm. issues, pressures that were obviously we're in a pressure cooker before. It's like there was a match that was just lit to all of these problems and it, it highlighted them. Unfortunately, it highlighted them where we're seeing, you know, longer term unemployment fears for those in, in mar- at-risk groups or marginalized groups. We're seeing this, like I said, this deficit in women's labor force. So mm. there has been some real catastrophic impacts from it that we're going to take a long time to get back. But it, I think it did highlight how bubbling this problem was. And there's no way that we can't ignore it because it's a bottom line issue now. Attrition such a major issue. Mm. Employers have to address it or they're going to turn over their people much more rapidly than they were before. It's interesting because it has made it so it's a problem that has to be dealt with. But at the same time, we're also going to see the negative impact of this for a long time yet because cultures just weren't set up for what needed to happen. There's, they've been so inflexible that, of course, it's it seems like it's a nice to have to address burnout. And now it's absolutely essential if they're going to actually continue to function as well, meet their bottom line. So what do you think is the way out of this? And do you see organizations who are grappling with this well? That's a great question. I'm writing my next piece and I'm already starting my next book, if you can believe it. I don't know why I'm doing that, but I am. Because um, <laughs> you have kids and a job and why not? Yeah, because I have, <laughs> I'm curious and I can't stop my curiosity. And mm-hmm. I think there's, I think as a researcher, there's just so much to learn about what's happened. And, and I do have a cautious optimism that there's going to be some good Results. I mean, for example, I write about Hewlett Packer in the book. They were much more sort of advanced in their burnout prevention strategy. So I really believe that you need to have a well wellness strategy that's overarching everything. But I do think that there's a difference between upstream interventions versus downstream tactics. And a burnout prevention strategy really thinks about society writ large and They had a very equitable maternity and paternity leave. They had a lot of social conversations around the importance of all primary caregivers, no matter what or who you are or what, you know, color, gender, you just go and take time off. And they had these other types of tools that they were using. And that's why their employee trust and their employee experience scores were so high. They didn't lose as many people. Mm. Well, they've come back. So they're just a few steps ahead. And What I just learned, because I'm writing about sort of reimagining the future of work, right? And what does that look like? And, and understanding why people have left, you know, what were, why did they make these dramatic career pivots? They're just so extraordinary. Some of these lifelong bankers at sea level had the corner office in the Manhattan building, had people around them, their status, and they're literally leaving this role because they realize that when all those things are stripped away, they hate the work. Uh And so they're making these really big 
we're seeing that teachers going to tech, we're seeing where they're going into online learning, developing products, leaving teaching altogether, nurses leaving teaching altogether, going into completely different sectors. And so the pandemic has made organizations, A, realize that we can pull talent from other sectors Mm. that we never thought we could, but also that we're losing people for no other reason than they're just done. They're not leaving for pay. They're not going to another company. They're just over. And when, Mm. so you start to reimagine what the workplace looks like, you know, Hewlett Packard, I give you that as an example, because I was just interviewing Alan May, who's the chief people officer. What he's been thinking about now is like, how do we think about work and the physical place of work? It used to be, it was all life on site, right? All those mm-hmm. tech companies, you had your laundry done, you had your dry cleaning done, you had gyms, you had dinners ready for you. So now it's all about taking food home. So mm-hmm. there's food available there for you to make with your family at home or food that you can bring home to your family. It's about having more flexibility. So a hybrid environment, creating maker spaces so that people can actually be developing their curiosity and creativity. So now you can go weld on site if you want to versus Mm. have your dry cleaning done. Like it's more about understanding that there's a human in all of us, <laughs> that's yeah. what we are. Yeah. And that the things that are going to be joyful for us in this, after facing 20 years of facing 20 months, I say, or two years facing our own mortality. Feels like 20 years. <laughs> yeah. It's a Freudian yeah. slip, right? Yeah. So he's made like, not he, but this is just one micro example of many where they're saying, okay, what is this about the pandemic that we've learned that people have learned mm-hmm. and they're not going to come back to the same place anymore. It's so and I interesting. Think that's exciting. Well, cause those of us who probably like, I imagine you have worked for ourselves and have worked from home and have had this kind of hybrid life for a long time. And I'm like, well, that just sounds like my life at the end of my desk where I work is the desk where I paint. And it's always sort of, I dabble and then maybe I do some laundry, but what's interesting is particularly like tech companies. And I've worked for a lot of communications agencies and it's the same where they're like, so great. The Drake's call it trolley comes around on a Thursday afternoon and there's ping pong at work. And I'm like, it's all just a clever ploy to get you to stay at work and work more. It's they're buying your life and it's not working for people anymore because they've figured out what it's like to actually have time to spend with your family and to cook. And I mean, I've experienced that myself as somebody who has a pretty sweet and balanced life. So what I wonder is with people really shifting their own directions, because I think most discomfort, okay, all discomfort has an upside that maybe people are settling in also to where they're meant to be and discovering they really want something that's aligned with who they truly are as a human being that treats them like they're human beings and that allows them to continue to evolve as a human being and function like that. So I wonder, and this is complete conjecture at this point, if it will have a positive impact on the skills and, and where people are in their jobs and they'll be there because they're genuinely interested in doing that job, not because they're like, well, the perks are good, but I kind of hate the work. So it will be interesting to see what impact this has on long-term burnout because maybe people will end up in jobs because they actually want to be there and are maybe more resilient in that environment as a result because they're happier. Just thought of that. Don't know if you've thought about that, but I'd be interested in any thoughts if you have any. I love what you're saying because 
I do, I again, I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that I'm a, I have cautious optimism that this has translated into a major change for us. So not only did we go through this process of really narrowing down our priorities, there was points in this experience, this sort of global social experiment where some of us just on a day-to-day basis were thinking about our own survival. Mm-hmm. And if you get that to those kind of like Maslow-based needs, right? You, everything about the schematics of your you know, whole life and the priority structure of your life change, they alter. That's why you see divorce rates actually increasing, sadly, because they're, or maybe not, but we're realizing people are saying that it's sort of, if not now, when? And and realizing that life is very short, you're, you do have that tested, that sense of like how long I'm going to live and what it looks like. And that applies to how we spend 50% of our waking hours, which is at work. So if we're going to spend almost 100,000 hours at work in a lifetime, that changes when you have this sort of this imbalance. And a lot of people are saying, okay, I want more, I want differently. And that being part of our power now, power dynamic Mm. is in the employees. It changes what employers have to offer. They just have to respond. This is where we're at. And now you can, your lot of organizations have gone hybrid. That means that they're, or remote, they're pulling talent from all over the place. It's not just geographic anymore. And I also think just us as individuals, we've learned emotional flexibility. We've learned through pivoting very quickly. So we've Mm -hmm. been able to be more risk-friendly, which makes us more able to be transformational, be able to take on change inside of organizations. We're not stuck. We're more agile in our leadership. We're much more able to be cognitively optimistic, which is really that belief that things will turn out okay, even if it wasn't how we planned. And so, so many things were canceled and changed. We just, we had to grieve it, which we did. We've grieved that old life, but now we're in this place. We're moving forward with this knowledge that just because you have a tradition or you're supposed to do it in this way, doesn't necessarily mean that's the right way because we've tested other variables and all of that, I think in this culminative way makes us different employers, employers, leaders, individuals. And that's going to be transformational in what I think, again, cautiously optimistic in a very positive way. Mm, I like your optimism because I was having a conversation earlier today with someone about how in sort of in the world of activism, in the world of people like us who tend to work in issues like climate change and social issues and social inequality, people are still figuring out or in denial that normal is over. Like, The way we used to be, the way we used to live is gone. It's dead. And I think some people are really still not really cognizant of that. So it seems like perhaps a lot of people obviously do acknowledge that the world of work is different and has to be different in future. So maybe that will trickle into the reality because I liked your optimism about we'd grieved that. I'm not so sure we've finished grieving it yet. (laughs) I think there's still some ongoing those five cycles that aren't a linear, (laughs) a linear process, but I do feel that we're seeing a real mental health crunch point right now, personally, at least I'm seeing that and feeling that with a lot of people. So I wonder, I'm sort of thinking, all right, we've moved forward. We've started to construct a new world of work. People have moved on. They've left their jobs. 
but there is sort of some collective trauma that we're still going to have to process for quite some time and where we put that and how we deal with that as a culture and a workplace. Well, that remains to be seen, I suppose, but I think moving forward, what then let's paint a picture. What are some elements of the future world of work that you are seeing? I mean, you talked about how HP are doing things differently. And I've done some work lately with HP enterprises mm-hmm. in the UK and they do have a really they have people who stick around for a long time. It's a good culture. Mm-hmm. It's a place people like to be, but they're having to adapt. So what is going to be important in future and what's that going to look like? I love that question because again, it's probably why I'm being so curious about it right now, because I don't know, like I said, I'm cautiously optimistic. So don't get me wrong. I know this is definitely we're in the hangover, like the severe hangover moment right now. And yes, things are looking hopeful, but we've been hopeful before. And our hope is now, I think a little jaded in that we've gone through five waves or however many waves it varies between one place and the next. And we think we're okay. And we lift the you know mandates or the protocols, and then we're right back in some other scenario again. So it's very possible that we're going to have continued to grow, but grow through rebounding. And we have developed a lot of skills to get there. But if we just go back to the way things are, which I see some companies do, I see some Mm. saying, let's just jam the toothpaste back into the tube. We're going to go back. I want everyone back in the office. This is what the expectation is. And I am seeing a bit of a revolt. And so that's where I see like, this is going to take some time. But if we have a resistance in place (laughs) to all of this, I think then, which I think I feel like we're seeing, I've been doing interviews with people saying like, why did you quit? And it was just, I'm not going to just do this for a paycheck anymore. Mm. And that used to be the only thing. It was transactional, a relationship with work. And that's what we were expecting. You paid me, I did a job. There was no reason why we had to have interplay between that. And that change, I think, is really infused now into the way that we have to think strategically about the future of work. And I see this sort of as the, as the cart and buggy, the, you know, Mm -hmm. versus the Ford truck, like it's this idea of in that disruptive moment, who, where do you want to really stick on? Like, what do you want to say is your way of acting inside of an organization? You really did, and this is the only way it's going to be, you know, the idea of having a vehicle driving around is silly, or I wouldn't want to invest in that, which a lot of still Uh like old school organizations say about well-being and mental health programming. They look at it as like, oh, that's silly, or that's never going to be a thing that I need to do. I'm never going to measure it to see that there's value in it. And I think what is happening is we're just seeing, and I can see this even just with this onslaught of large firms now making, going hybrid, large firms adding 20 days of paid family leave. Never saw this before. (laughs) Nope. Wow. Yeah. Like it's a, there's some major catalyst changes that I'm seeing that we don't go back from that. You don't have a perk or what I say is not a perk. It's just a burnout prevention strategy and should be table stakes and should be hygiene. But you're seeing all of these sort of declarations of big firms that are creating a tipping point, but there's always going to be those firms that don't really care and industries that don't care. And there's going to be some sectors like healthcare and tech and law and finance 
that are going to take those institutional sort of legacy driven, more burnout prone sectors take quite a while to, I think, to or or maybe never get to that point where it's fixed. Well, you've just wiped the optimism straight out of this conversation. (laughs) But I agree. I think unless things are uncomfortable, a lot of sectors and, and leaders who they're good at the system they're in. That's how they became leaders of those systems. It works for them. I do think the passing of time will help because there will be people who have different expectations rising through the ranks and a different, hopefully a different array of faces and identities in leadership who get it that people need different. But mm, yeah, okay, I got mixed optimism there. But it's interesting (laughs) how people are, it's going to be driven by people themselves, isn't it? Because you want to be allowed to be human. People have really gotten in touch with their humanity during this pandemic. I mean, face-to-face, ugly moments, but also beautiful moments. And I think that's a good message here, actually. Organizations, I mean, the institutional element of burnout is super important, but people make up the culture. People make up those institutions. And if you all resign, you have a big impact. Or if you do say, I'm not working under these conditions anymore, they might fire you, but they might also change. So, I mean, I've run loads of campaigns in the past, and it is just generally taking that principle of collective impact into an organization and saying, this isn't working for us. It has to change if you want to keep us. And we're going to be more productive. And you're probably going to make more money for your shareholders. That's pretty much win-win. So actually, what is the ROI on this? How do you talk to organizations and say, if you actually focus on preventing burnout, you're going to save this money. You're going to have this much less turnover. You're actually going to be able to meet your business objectives better because people aren't burning out. I'm sure you have loads of statistics. Yes. I've been working in the the measure space for a long time. It's been data insights, but then interventions and how they map to all the metrics that matter. I mean, when you really look at the metrics that matter, it should be just self-reported job satisfaction and well-being. But, but when you look at really what maintains competition. And of course, it's important to still be a flourishing company. The more we all are successful together, the better it is. But what I've come to understand is that a lot of organizations just don't measure the impact of their interventions or don't trial it or think it has to be a giant programmatic change instead of understanding that it's about just micro intentions and it should be just measured in a a really between direct managers and teams and small teams, intimate teams, all these little pieces of the puzzle. When you look at a contagion, it spreads like by one individual Mm -hmm. from to the other. And so we're looking at a contagion being something that happens to everyone. And then over time it, it recedes and that's not necessarily how it jumps. So we need to be able to imagine a network effect or social contagion by starting in these small ways and measure, even starting like when in the book, it's very prescriptive. It's like, how about we try this intervention within a certain department or even just across a few teams interdepartmentally, and then look at what happens when you have a half hour non-work related check-in that you do every week for the next six months and see, does it change? Do you become what I think is what Dr. Martha Bird said this in the book, which I loved in her interview. She said, direct managers, and we all need to be professional eavesdroppers. So mm-hmm. we're supposed to be looking for the, the language of burnout or the language of motivation or 
listen to the nuances of what inspire people or what cause stress or what makes people feel worried, uncertain. And the more we can play this role of active listening, which is just behaving with empathy, we can start to gather this really great understanding of each person around us. And then that spreads, right? So Mm. we do this non-work related check-in for 30 minutes every week and then ask people, how do they feel about their job satisfaction? What is their trust levels? How do they feel about their own productivity? How do they feel about their engagement? All the things we measure in these giant macro engagement, looking back surveys, when we should be gathering data in a way that's more about the semiotics of people's lives and be looking for those things and then measure it ourselves, ask, Mm. create anonymous feedback loops, create ways for us to have better trust and then be measured on that. And direct managers can put that as part of their performance goals. I want to be able to be a better leader, which means I want to build trust as paramount. So all of these things, and again, there's that's one example of so many different tiny ways mm-hmm. that we can make changes that eventually create this culture that focuses on empathy, curiosity, well-being, burnout prevention versus those other metrics that we also map and downstream, we see higher sales, higher levels of shareholder value. Like that big macro data comes up always showing that the teams that engage this way are the ones that are the highest performing. I think what helps is giving leaders who don't necessarily have the motivation to work any differently, some metrics to be like, this is actually going to result in treating people as more human is actually going to help you do better in your business. Also, Jennifer Moss for the contagion metaphor win. That was a great one. It's just like, (laughs) it is how things spread. It's person to person. It's not that you just have this big, massive cloud of changes all of a sudden. I love that that also pointed straight back to leadership and the value Mm -hmm. of, we hear so much about empathy and active listening from the Brene Browns of the world. And and in the Cambridge course that I tutor this week, we're actually, it's communicating for impact and influence. And this week, it's all about their personal leadership styles. And so many of them have shared in the forums that something they have identified as needing to work on as leaders, and a lot of them are middle managers, is listening. And Mm -hmm. that is such an easy thing to skip. And it's so important to everything, to knowing what's going on around you, to being able to respond, to being able to lead effectively, but also to helping to prevent burnout, kind of going back to that main topic here. But yeah, that was a really useful insight that leaders are important and it's also very human, person to person. That keeps coming up here, being human at work. When you talk about listening too, I mean, this active listening is really, and I think that's what's so critical about the active piece is that you're listening and then you're taking in what people are, you're truly listening by actioning what they're telling you. Mm -hmm. And that's how you develop that trust is to say, I heard you, but I'm not going to just put it away or it goes in one ear or the other. It is actually like, okay, I've heard that. And I've heard that over time. This is something that I need to recognize. Or even we managers often talk about how they're nervous about what they're going to get asked. What if I don't have the budget for a resource? And so they're just going to tell me I need 
another resource. It's about saying, okay, let's create an advocacy plan. I can't afford it right now, but you tell me in the times where this resource is needed and why, and we look at your workload and show when it ebbs and flows based on this need. And then maybe we figure out other ways. Maybe it's technical training. Maybe it's different types of resourcing. Maybe it's borrowing a resource during times of high need. And it's more about being like, let's put my head in the sand because I really can't afford it. I don't want to go to my boss. It's about saying, okay, I hear you. We have to do this together. It could take a while, but let's try to do this as a team to create the opportunity to give you what you need. And I think we miss that ability to say, I don't need to say yes, like to everything that person asked for. It's about saying, how do we come together to try to feel like you have agency and we're working towards a goal. And that mm. makes such a difference for people that it's not that there's this misunderstanding that employers are demanding and it's us and them, and we're not in this place together. And if we just have these conversations that are a bit more transparent and honest, I think we start to see that build. And also starting to question what is possible. I think that's quite expansive for leaders and managers to not just shut down any conversation. It's like, that's not possible. Sorry. Let's just keep doing things the way we do them. Or I can't afford that. And just say, well, let's dream about it. Let's come up with a plan. And then maybe the budget will appear from somewhere because I mean, I kind of live my life this way. And probably a lot of people who choose to listen to a podcast called the discomfort practice, probably on board with this. If you prepare the ground often, like the thing that will water it. So things grow, things come to fruition will happen. You know, sort of, if you build it, they will come that kind of concept, you know, (laughs) and just thinking, well, what's wrong with just having a plan at the ready in your drawer. This has worked for me throughout my career, by the way, I remember on several points when running campaigns and a civil servant or somebody I was lobbying for something would finally get to the point where they'd be like, "Ah, fine. What do you want? And I'd be like, do you want my list? And I always had my list. And then most of the time I would get 75% on my list, things that I wanted. So have your list of things that you wish for or things that people want from you. If you're a leader or a manager, don't just shut it down. Invite them to explore with you, be honest about the limitations that are currently in place, but then like act as if things could happen because actually that's when things tend to happen, right? So Yeah. Yeah, And 75% is better than nothing. And people will be very happy with 75%. It's not an all or nothing plan or discussion. And I think you're, you said that so aptly is that I had this thing at the ready. And so I got some of the things and I, maybe not all, but that's real healthy compromise. And that is, I think the disconnect is you ask for something I need to be this, or I need to do this. And if I can't, then there's abject failure there. And that's not, the case. Yeah. And also it arose out of conversations and relationships that I had with people who had something that I really needed, which was like funding for my NGO I ran or Mm -hmm. a politician. I really needed them on board to pass a certain law or something. And, Mm -hmm. but I knew them, we had conversations and it wasn't that I went to them with a demand. And sometimes that works sort of very adversarial (laughs) almost, but usually it's through having a relationship and having them be like, right, you keep showing up. You're kind of nice. (laughs) We have good conversations. Fine. At last, what do you want? And then they get to feel good that they finally gave you something they want because you have a relationship. And I think just start to communicate at work as if you're humans, as your boss, you're a human. The people who work for you are humans. If you are wanting something from your organization, it's 
they're humans too. The people who are on the board of your organization or the CEO, they probably have families and kids and a personal life, or at least they'd like to have a personal life if they don't have time. But just start to think of people as human. And I think you can start to have those conversations a little more easily. Mm. I really want to hear about your work with the UN Global Happiness Council. I've saved it for last because I really (laughs) want to hear about this work. And I think probably a lot of people want to hear about this work. So what does the UN Global Happiness Council do? Well, it's interesting. So it's been sort of on pause because of COVID, but how everything's on, a lot of things are on pause (laughs) because of COVID. But part of what the Global Happiness Council does is, and, and it was born out of these sort of five, really five, I think five or six really fascinating people from different parts of research. We're looking at economists we have, and really leading minds in that, these spaces, right? Like Seligman, Martin Seligman from positive psychology. And then we have Christine Durand, who is part of the like ILF. And there's just all of these really neat people that are working in the space, trying to look at how do we address the UN Sustainable Development SDGs around well-being. And it's one part of like a big giant goal, right? And so we all tackled it from different areas. So from economics, from workplace. And so I was on the team that really looked at it from the workplace area. And so there was great research that was done. Jan Emanuel Deneuve out of Oxford, you might be familiar with him. He's an economist uh, there, professor of economy now, I think. And what he was really looking at was like all these impacts of work and our success based on many different layers, even the weather he looked at in certain parts of the world, how Mm. does our happiness contribute to our success at work based on a hundred rainy days in a row and what that means for like creating space and design and thinking about all of these parts of the experience of work, but also looking at when what I really looked at is how do we attach psychological fitness and emotional intelligence in environments in a way that isn't just expecting employees to work on these programs around gratitude and then no one else is doing it. And Mm -hmm. we found that unless, and we did a lot of comparison and we had worked with a university, Wilfrid Laurier University, so we could actually have control groups and examine this. And we took it into a school board we had 12,000 staff, 23,000 students, 5,000 parents in the community, and then other people like bus drivers and everyone that's involved mm-hmm. inside of the ecosystem. And we started measuring in classrooms, if if in classrooms and then in schools and then in the board, how it trickles through in that Christakis Fowler like term essentially. And so if we used the same language, if everyone shared the same language and there was sort of seven focused traits, if you had people in IT, people at the board, parent council, kids and students all saying the same things, how does that translate across an ecosystem? Mm. And we found things like violence in schools were down dramatically. Bullying was reduced. Like that piece, parents were describing sibling relationships were improving at home. We saw crime rates in certain areas decrease. I mean, it was fascinating to see that if we can create this 
shared language in our community, it can really change. And we also saw that even in this IT group or the finance team, the farther away they were from the inspiration, which was the student, the child, the more likely they were to burn out, which was so Mm -hmm. fascinating. So there's a prophylaxis to inspiration and to having something that is meaningful that actually increases your likelihood of well-being and decreases burnout. So we changed the storytelling and brought the students inside of these places where they never are and really told more stories to this group so they understood what their part, what role they played in helping these students to be successful. And then we started to measure and saw that there was this rise in their own well-being as they got more connected to the child, the student. So that's a long story around what I have contributed to the report that we put out annually. But what it is, is supposed to look at what, when we drive well-being, how do all of these other metrics change? Mm. And it's really powerful when you see it in action. And this is a five-year research study and really exciting to see some of these things that translated. Wow. It's also just exciting to know that there are so many smart people focusing on happiness mm-hmm. and measuring it and figuring out the elements of it so that you can actually be like, well, these are the elements of how we create happiness. And why wouldn't we? Because it does all of these amazing things, but it's so much about what came out for me a good narrative and communications. And again, relationships, contact between humans and connection to the idea that you have agency, that you can have an impact in the world. Those are all just such juicy elements. And it always amazes me that they just kind of get swept aside. And this system that we've set up, that's about profit over anything else, over human beings being well, or our planet being livable. And I hope that we are in a rapid transition away from that, because if we're not, it's going to be forced upon us anyway, as we bankrupt our national resources and our natural resources and people burn out. So I'm interested in hearing as we wrap up, what's next for you? You're writing your next book. What's that going to focus on? Do you have a timeline for it? All of that. The real focus, yeah, so the book is something that is very early days. I wasn't even planning, I think, to write this early, but talking to HBR and there's things that are bubbling and there's research that's very novel. So I think that is like right now is sort of a novel time in history (laughs) where we're, where we have to capture it. And so there is maybe, I feel a sense of urgency of getting to the bottom of it. Mm. So that will be a goal. I'm doing more work on strategy with the lots of organizations that I've worked with and learning a lot, doing research with them to understand as they try to reimagine work, what does that look like and how do people feel about it? Lots of time spent with just individual employees asking them why they left, where are they now? Are they in the same burnout cycle? Did they just hop from one place to the next and not realize that it's pervasive or are they feeling different? Really looking at the human experience of work post-pandemic is going to be my goal for the next little while and still writing and speaking and doing the other stuff that I do. (laughs) Well, it's been a treat to have you here. I love it when I get somebody who's so clearly happy with and comfortable with the medium, but also all of the things that you've talked about are just so relevant. And I'm sure anybody listening to this has had quite a few things land with them. And I haven't actually really done very many book plugs, even though I've had a few authors, but I'm going to just end by saying, 
buy the book, The Burnout Epidemic by Jennifer Moss, because there are practical things in it to help people imagine a better world of work. And the world of work will change more rapidly if all of us are imagining it better and then expecting it to be better and contributing to its being more human. So if there are any final thoughts you'd like to leave people with, I invite you to go ahead. Anything you want to leave people with? Yeah. One thing that I always like making people feel if they're not yet there is that burnout is not your fault and we should not feel ashamed to feel that we are struggling. And there are people still right now very much experiencing the symptoms of burnout and can't effectively talk to their manager about it or feel like it's so stigma and stigmatized that they are turning away from it, or they're saying that they're, there's nothing really wrong with them, or they should just suck it up and they don't need help because it's not a real thing. You know, I want people to feel like they can feel serious about it and take it seriously and access the supports that they need. And, and understanding that if your world inside your organization is that toxic, that it's okay to find other avenues and figure out ways for you to have a better life. It doesn't always need to be like this. Oh, what a great final thing to leave people with. And I can say from personal experience, I have walked away from a couple of very toxic Mm -hmm. organizations I've been in and it hasn't necessarily been voluntarily, but I had to, to stay well or to recover my wellness. And it's been the best decision ever made, made for me, made with me, whatever, you know what I'm saying here, people, Yeah. but it's, (laughs) it's never too late. And also if you are burned out, you might be in a little loop and not seeing it clearly. So talk to somebody about it. A lot of people will have employer helplines that they can call, get some mental health support or talk to somebody if you're being bullied at work even, or your workload is just too much and you can't say no, there is help out there. So even just Google something, definitely buy this book, but remember you're not alone. A lot of people are experiencing burnout right now and there's a way out of it. And we all need to support each other in getting out of it because we need to be well in order to make the world well. So I just want to end by thanking you so much for your time and your expertise. It's been a real pleasure, Jennifer. I've loved our conversation. It's just been so enjoyable. Thank you so much for hosting me. Thank you. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this episode, follow and like the discomfort practice wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave me a five-star and written review and share this with other people. Help me to reach new audiences with this idea that consciously practicing discomfort helps us to individually and collectively discover our superpowers and create a society and a planet where everyone can thrive. Thank you so much to my guests all season. Go back and listen to a few more episodes to hear more of them. They are wonderful humans doing amazing things in the world. Thanks to my team who helped me produce this podcast and for those who inspire me through their writing, their conversation, and their support. So that's all from me for now. Follow me on Instagram at the Betsy Reed if you want to get to know me a bit better, some of my thoughts. And in the meantime, stay uncomfortable. <laughs>